Hey, everyone. I want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian in crypto and provider of prime services. They're also one of my favorite companies in the space. So thank you very much to Copper for making this episode possible. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly round of edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my patient co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. I'm calling him patient because I was late this morning. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Ah, no worries. No worries. So... Happy Groundhog Day. So recording this on Groundhog Day and, and wearing the Carolina blue because the day of the release that evening, tomorrow evening, Saturday evening, Carolina Duke, big game down here. So quick reveal. I got I got Bitcoin orange on today and I have my having socks. So, uh, you know, I, I still have the 2020 having socks. They haven't sent me the 2024 Mount socks. Um, that's a shameless beg for for new software, new sock game. But uh, look, the only thing that matters is the having right now. You know, the ETF, water under the bridge behind us. It kind of does feel like Groundhog Day. Since December, since first week of December, it's been 43K like the whole time. You know, we had one spike up and one spike down. But other than that, just kind of every day, it's it's the same. And uh I think that's all about to change pretty dramatically as as the having comes. So, yeah, I think so as well. And it turns out, you know, Jim Bianco came on this program in the beginning of January. He was right. The ETF was a bit of a sell the news event. Ultimately, I would maintain that that doesn't really matter, and the Bitcoin ETFs are, oh. uh, you know, the ETF complex is short term. Look, the short term is. Clearly, to me, irrelevant in the sense that what happens in these events is the big dogs manipulate in the short run, right? They, they know that they can buy up assets in advance. They can then short against it. And they, and they do all kinds of arbitrage. And ETF arbitrage is why Ken Griffin and others like him are so wealthy, right? I mean... They benefit, the market makers benefit extraordinarily. And the prop trading desks on Wall Street and all these people scalp, shall we say. Um, you know, all of this, it's like, it's like when, when you think you're trading for free on Robinhood. You're just not, right? You're, you're paying way more than the old days of high commission rates in the sense of you're losing on execution and your order flow is being sold to the rich guys. And, and then if you watch the movie, which is a great movie, I mean, it was so good. Dumb money, which is so good. They can just turn it off. They can live. You haven't seen it. Oh, you gotta watch it this weekend. It's, it's one of the best movies I've seen in the past year. I mean, other than Maverick, it would be right up there. Mark, it might be worth pointing out to people because the order flow debate is, I find it a very interesting one and in a lot of ways a manifestation uh, manifestation of how finance people and non-finance people talk past each other. And so order flow, what a lot of people think of as order flow is Robinhood would sell your order flow directly to Citadel and then they will trade against you directly. Now, in in principle, that's sort of what happens, but it's not actually what happens. Now, yeah. it would be very, it would be very illegal if... Uh, Citadel Securities just saw this incoming order flow and then front ran all of these retail investors, right? They don't do that. But what they do do is they say, hey, 
flow is very correlated. And if there's a bunch of buy orders coming in for GME, GameStop, we could make a pretty informed decision that AMC, we're going to get a bunch of orders for that coming in soon because those two stocks are very correlated. And so they will start buying up AMC. And so if you are a buyer of GME, it doesn't impact you. You're actually getting better execution than you otherwise would have. But if you are a buyer of AMC, then you are getting front ran in a sense. And front ran, it's not the technical legal definition. I think most people would agree it's the spirit of what's actually happening. Uh, and they're just being more clever about it. And what it allows financial folks to do is say, we don't front run you. In pre- and technically, that is correct. Yeah. But uh, well, it's not the front running that I uh, look at. I, I, front running isn't what bothers me. What bothers me is, is the spread. You, you think when you put in a market order, Again, you're not getting a good fill, right? It's just there's a very wide spread in the bowels of of the trading, um, and and it's fine, right? I mean, it, look, anything that's free, right? Facebook is free, but you you're paying for it in the sense of, uh, I mean, not directly, like it's not money out of your pocket, but um, you are the product. So lots, lots of things that are free that aren't free. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Copper. Copper is an institutional custodian and provider of prime services within digital assets. Today, what I want to talk to you specifically about is Clearloop. Clearloop is a solution from Copper, which to me solves one of the biggest problems for market makers, high frequency traders, hedge funds within digital assets. You know the exquisite pain of what I call the pre-funding problem. So if you want to take advantage of arbitrages that pop up across different exchanges, or you just have a trading strategy, which requires you to be active on multiple different centralized exchanges, you have to pre-fund your account at each one of those exchanges. Now, this is not ideal for a whole bunch of reasons. One, you have to take counterparty risk from those exchanges, which we saw this last year can have major consequences. Two, it's capital inefficient. You have a whole bunch of assets spread out there. Most of them are not doing anything most of the time. And three, it's just not great from a workflow standpoint, and it creates administrative overhead. So enter Clearloop. Clearloop is the secure MPC custody solution provided by Copper. The way that it works is you deposit your assets into this MPC solution, which is owned and operated by you. Clearloop syncs up with a whole bunch of your favorite exchanges, and then you can trade securely from Clearloop itself while not taking any counterparty exchange risk with any of these exchanges. And it's a super easy and nice UX. Now, Clearloop is trusted by the likes of Flow Traders, Brevin Howard, Nickel, some of the best in the business. But the coup de grace is in the extreme edge case that one of these exchanges were to go bankrupt, they have a very clever trust structure, which segregates your assets and keeps you completely protected. So Click the link at the bottom of this episode, especially if you're a hedge fund or market maker and you want to learn more or better yet, Dimitri, the CEO, is actually going to be in person on a panel hosted by yours truly at Digital Asset Summit. So Das London, that's March 18th to 20th in London. So you should definitely click the link at the bottom of this episode, give your boy some credit, but also even better, come to Das London and hear from Dimitri himself. All right. Cheers, everyone. I want to I want to get on to talk a little bit about uh the ETF complex, the Bitcoin ETF complex. Now, one of the things that happened this week, Mark, that I'd love to get your take on is there was a little bit of a shift in terms of net inflow. So one of the one of the issues with the the Bitcoin ETFs has been 
the GBTC product, which was transitioned from essentially a closed-end fund into a Bitcoin ETF. Now, when Grayscale, who is the the owner of GBTC, the closed-end product, now Bitcoin ETF, when they launched, they had just over $25 billion in assets, and they kept their fees very high. It was 150 basis points compared to 30 basis points compared to, or, or if you're you know bitwise, you're essentially waiving fees for the first six months or a yep. billion in assets or something like that. So obviously there was going to be a lot of outflows. They'd also trapped a lot of Bitcoin for a long time. People probably just wanted out at that point. And that's what we were seeing. So for the first week or so, we were seeing anywhere from 450 to $600 million per day in outflows. And there's a ton of volume being traded on GBTC. But within this last week, those outflows have started to tail off, which is what we said would happen last week. So some $220 million in outflows versus, you know, two times that the week prior. And net inflows have started to tick back up. So in the range of the last two days were $200 million and $247 million in net inflows across the rest of the complex. And for the first time, the BlackRock uh, ETF, IBIT, traded more volume than GBTC. Yep. So it's starting to feel like some of the pain of the outflows of GBTC are over. And now these net inflows and probably the narrative is going to start changing as well. But what, what is what is your sort of most up-to-date thought on the ETF complex? Uh, absolutely, as you described, right? You know, the idea that that all of the money, right? We've talked about all the different estimates from, you know, 30 billion if, you know, investors that the captive investor base in these brokerage firms that haven't been allowed to participate, you know, is roughly 30 trillion, pick a number. And 0.1% would be 30 billion. And that that you know would move the market. And we've seen about a third of that. We've seen a little over 10 kind of come this way. But it doesn't happen in day one. And and it gets I would argue that 0.1 is even kind of a silly number. I think it's easily going to be 1%. So that's 300 billion. But what we saw was a bunch of the big guys said, oh, no, 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 no. Even though this is a BlackRock or Fidelity approved ETF, we're still not going to let you buy it with your money. So people said, well, I'm out, right? I'll just leave and go someplace else. But um, eventually I think they're going to change their minds. And that money will continue in right now, every day, and we'll see how long it lasts, but I, I think it's going to last for a while. Every day, the ETF complex is buying roughly three times the number of Bitcoin that are mined. So we got the having socks on today, and that's only for the next three months. Three months from now, that number goes from 900 to 450. If the same pace keeps up, which I think is pretty likely, um, you're going to be talking six times the daily production. And so that is a supply-demand imbalance that will lead to rising prices. And I mean, people have heard this from me ad nauseum. Rising prices beget rising prices, right? Once an asset starts to move, people are drawn to it. That's, that's the way it works. And that will push us past fair value into, you know, silly levels sometime in the crypto fall that'll start, you know, next June. And a year from now, I think we'll be talking about, oh my gosh, how did we get to triple digit Bitcoin? And when's the bear market coming? Because there will be another bear market because the FOMO gets 
really extreme as you start to go parabolic in any asset, like NVIDIA right now. I mean, Tesla before, I mean, NVIDIA right now is, it's, it's amazing to watch. Mark, I completely agree with you on that. Here's, I've been starting to develop an opinion and I would love you for you to push back, uh, qualify, or just would love to get your thoughts in general. And it might be an unpopular opinion, but I'm starting Hold to- Hold I'm gonna give you two thumbs up already. I, I, right, I don't even right. know the opinion and I love it. If it's all unpopular. right. I wonder if the, with the arrival of the Bitcoin ETF and presumably the Ethereum ETF and maybe Solana or other L1 ETFs in the future, if we've seen the high watermark for volatility in crypto. And what, by, what I mean by that is I think, I think that these ETFs are going to have a dampening effect on volatility. And the way that I would describe that for the listener is up until this point, the next incremental dollar that was coming into Bitcoin or other crypto assets was primarily either a retail dollar or someone that was trying to momentum trade and yeah. get ahead of retail flows, right? So that is a huge reason for why this space has been so unbelievably volatile. And now I think with the arrival of the ETFs, and there's some crazy stat out there. The Bitcoin ETFs across the, the nine of them already have something like 3% of Bitcoin. And it makes sense to me that the next honeypot of money or the next pool of money to flow into Bitcoin is going to come from RIAs and boomers. And it's going to change from a retail dollar to a passive flow, a passive flow dollar. And yeah. that's just a very structurally different, that's just a very structurally different uh, set of flows that are going to be driving these markets. No, it's, and it's then, why we have the MAG-7, right? right? We have now more passive money than active in the United States. What does that mean? We have more index funds and ETFs, passive. Now, passive, by the way, is not passive. This is this, you know, I tweeted this out the other day. In the last uh, 20 years, only 31% of companies that went public still exist. Think about that number. 69% of them gone. So there is turnover in these indices. It's just slow. But what they are, they are capitalization weighted, meaning they have to buy the th more of things as they become expensive. So they get more and more and more concentrated. And we saw this phenomenon in 2000 and you get to a point where silliness, right? Cisco at 286 times earnings and people finally wake up and say, oh, that's bad. And you have a correction. And here we are again. And you got all these companies now trading 100, 150 times earnings, 30, 40 times revenues. And people are like, no, no, it's different this time. Four most dangerous words in investing. And, and it will end. But when people try to short it, and we've talked about this before with MicroStrategy in 2000, you can try to short the stupidity. And I'm not, MicroStrategy in 2000 is very different than NVIDIA. It's more like Cisco and Microsoft to NVIDIA. Perfectly good, or Intel. Intel went up 20-fold. Think about that. It went up 20-fold in four years because it was going to change the world with AI. It's funny, back in 2000, they were talking about AI. And now it's down 40% since then. So, because it got 
you know, displaced. And you know, I saw the the CEO of NVIDIA on the other day talking about, you know, the entire um, structure of computing is changing and we're leading that. And <laughs> this is great. I love people who are humble braggers. I mean, he's, he's very soft-spoken so, and, and we're the only company that gets this. Really? Really? You think you're the only company in the world that gets that we're in a transformational move in, in computing? Okay, fine. Um, you know, I have a few companies that would disagree with that. But, uh, but if you short that in a momentum world, you get knocked down. So totally agree with you. And actually, we have data on this. So the, the volatility, it's from this side. It's volatility is trending down in, I can't, it's, it's, it's reversed on my screen. I can't do it. It's confusing my brain. Um, but uh, volatility Bitcoin was triple digits when it started because it was a science project. There was no there there. It was two, it was super vol, a little penny to two pennies. That's a hundred percent move. Um, but as it has gotten more mature and gotten bigger, that volatility is, is now trended down. It's like in the forties. Uh, long-term still closer to, to 65, 70, but we're definitely going to trend down. And it's because the passive holders, hodlers are part of that, but now the ETF is structurally a passive holder. Leverage is also down. So there's not as much leverage and as much speculation. Uh, there, there will be more leverage. Leverage will come back, but but there's not as much as there was. Um, so I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. But the the passive versus active debate is is a tough one because the more passive there is, the more the more you just keep reducing the supply, and that's like a supply shock. And and that three percent number is actually probably not right. Not not that your number is not right, but. I, I, I just saw this stat. No, I just saw this stat that that kind of blew me away. I mean, I knew the lost or stolen component of a Bitcoin was big, but I, I never saw it in in a visual. The estimate is that five million of the nineteen million coins that have been mined to date are untouchable, lost, stolen, stuck in multi sigs where somebody's passed or. That's a big number. And even if it's not right, it's probably not off orders of magnitude. And so that 3% is probably more like 5% and trending to a, a very large number. So uh, supply shocks will lead to higher prices. Full stop. Hey, everyone. We'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about DAS London. DAS London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto hosted by Blockworks. But I wanted to give you an update because we are now 10 times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower, as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs, from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of the Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital, and actually on 
day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60, but we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So if you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark, uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London town. Cheers. That's another thing I've been thinking recently. So I've sort of given you my thesis about, I think of these things as commodities for the most part. And, sure. you know, people who trade commodities talk a lot about commodity price shocks. But the reason why nothing ever like fully goes parabolic forever is because, A, there's kind of this societal uh, pressure to put downward prices on commodities because we consume commodities and it's a massive problem if oil goes to five bucks, right? Like policymakers move heaven and earth. But also because people find substitutes, right? So if a commodity gets expensive enough, people will go into other things. Yep. I think that's the history of crypto in a nutshell is, yes, Bitcoin has this perfect programmatic never going past 21 million, but I think people find other substitutes for it. And that's sort of the, you know, whenever I, I used to hear these people make this criticism of Bitcoin that, well, you can just create other coins. And I was like, that's the, stu- come on guys, that's, that's not intellectually honest. That's, you, you, you can't create more Bitcoin. It's like, and I've kind of come around to that idea because, yeah, you could, okay, you could own Bitcoin. That is the hardest, most sound uh, form of money I think that you can own. Like Ethereum's pretty good. Ethereum, it, it makes some trade-offs. I think you can get yield with something like Ethereum. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I sort of feel like this supply shock, this legendary supply shock that everyone's talking about, I kind of don't think it's ever, I think it's here. I think we're living through that supply shock now, but I don't see there's like a, I think the days of these, I think we just get, I'm not saying we're never going to get another God candle in Bitcoin. No, 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 no. I, I, I hear I you. Just and I think the, the subtle, the subtle disagreement um, we would have is that uh, for, for, gen, for general commodities, consumable commodities, right? If, if I take a barrel of oil and I refine it into gasoline and I put that gasoline in my car and I burn it, it's gone. If I take an ear of corn and I roast it and I consume it, it's gone. It's different with gold, right? Gold, you dig it out of the ground, you refine it, you put it in a bar, you don't eat it, you don't melt it, you don't, you don't consume it. And so that supply of that asset stays relatively fixed. And we all know the stock to flow. If you think about the amount of gold that's mined every year versus what's used for industrial purposes, that actually does disappear. Like we consume small amounts of gold for fillings in our teeth or, or, you know, conductors in, in electrical circuits. And some of that does get, you know, thrown away and, and consumed. But the vast majority of it just sits in these bars and coins. And Bitcoin to me is, because that is the monetary base, meaning the base level of all money in the world is gold, right? Every central bank issues money, currency on top of that, not, not money. The money is the gold part. And, and I'll give you an example of, I just did a talk. I was in Cayman uh, this week and they have this cool thing. It's called, it used to be called the Cayman Alternative Investment Summit. And that kind of has migrated to more like the, the Cayman family wealth summit 
And so they invite families from all over the world to come and talk about big ideas and, and also, hey, bring your money to Cayman. That's, that's what they're trying to do. And so I did one of the keynote addresses. And the, the topic of the, the event was power, politics, and populism. And they're like, all right, Mark, we're going to talk about power, politics, and populism. And I didn't really, I didn't really listen to the assignment. I know that's shocking to you um, because they really wanted me to talk about alternative investments. And I said, I hate talking about alternative investments because alternative to what? There are no such alternative investments. There are stocks, there are bonds, there are currencies, and there are commodities. Oh, no, hedge funds are, no, hedge funds are just a wrapper. You own stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. Real estate, that's an alternative. No, I own equity, debt, or the land, the commodity. Private equity, that, that's, a, that's an alternative. No, common stock, preferred stock, you know, convertible bond. So I hate the term. But what I thought she wanted me to talk about was power, politics, and populism. But what she wanted me to talk about was within that. And she had someone talk about power, someone talk about politics, someone talk about, she had, you know, Senator Phil Graham, you know, some big speakers. And so, but anyway, I, I was inspired to do the history of power, politics, and populism. Because if you think about those three things, that is the cycle of an empire. There's the power phase where you're accumulating power and you're rising to empire status. There's the politics phase where the politicians screw it up by overspending and getting indebted and devaluing the currency. And then there's the populism phase where you get kicked out. Right, French Revolution type, and so so I went through the history of empires, and and the one that really struck me, and the one that that really kind of hit home, given where we are in the U.S. right now, was was Rome. And you got you know I've talked about this in the past, but but the thing that that was really there was a great visual where they had this thing called the the denarius, right, which was their their coin, and it was originally pure silver all silver. But as each district governor, I don't know if governor was the right term, um, decided they wanted to build their own circus or bath or place, you know, to, because they had this great trade realm and they would tax the trade and it made the citizens of Rome super wealthy. And they would build all this great stuff like the Colosseum I love the picture now of the Coliseum, half of its Coliseum and half of its chief stadium. It's like bread and circuses. So I like that. But um, long story short is like, well, there's not enough denarius coins for me to build my great bath to honor me. I'll melt them down and then I'll create more coins. And that's what happened. And the silver content of denarius basically went to zero. And the soldiers who protected the empire said, don't pay me in this shit. Give me a real coin. And they eventually they had a hyperinflation in wages. And eventually the, the, the soldier said, nope. And then the Visigoths came in and boom, gone. I was like, that's exactly what's happening. The money that we all get paid in, the fiat is getting slowly deteriorated and that shows up in the price of Bitcoin. So anyway. So I agree with, I agree with a lot of that bark, but where I want to add a little bit of nuance, because this is a bugaboo of mine and I will, I will push back on parts of it because 
in that framing, what I what the the only part that I'll disagree with you on is that the the uh, debasement of the currency is not the causal factor for what causes an empire to fail. Something else is broken, and the papering over the debasement of the currency is a palliative attempt to paper over the problem, which is ultimately unsuccessful. So in the case of Rome, and actually most empires fail for really like a really banal reason, which is an organizational problem. And in the case of Rome, they had their revenue model as an empire used to be, they actually didn't have income taxes for an enormous period of time. Right. And then and then they levied a 2% income tax and one lost their mind. That's funny. So at the time though, what they would do is they would go out and conquer... Uh, they would go out and conquer other nations that were adjacent to them, right? This was kind of, and the whole society was baked around this principle. Not only was it had they largely made income, but, you know, the ro- like what you wanted to do as someone who is a member of the military or the aristocracy of the time is you wanted to go out, conquer someone, bring their plunder back, and then they would run you a triumphal procession in Rome. That was That was the goal. That was the end game for powerful people during the Roman period of time. But what that the problem with that strategy, what they couldn't adapt to is eventually they just got to such a large point where they couldn't actually organize their empire. They just couldn't feed everyone. They just literally. No, that's exactly right. And especially when the money became less valuable because you needed more of it. And and to your point, all those people on the edges, because the the empire kept expanding, right? They basically took over Alexander the Great's empire, bottom line. And it just kept expanding it. And those soldiers on the fringe were what protected Rome from being plundered by all the others, you know, that, that wanted that. And, and exactly as you described, they lost both administrative control, logistical and tactical control. And part of that was size. Part of it was communication. Part of it was incentives. But it was... It was the fracturing into three regional, I can't remember what they called them, um, but it went from a single empire to three empires on this consistent devaluation. Two other people became powerful through populism. And again, this is the populism part. The failure of every empire is during the populism part. Look what's happening in America right now. We got populism squared on both sides, right? Trying to, you know, almost deify these populist leaders who the average person says, oh my God, they're scumbags. So I don't know. I, I just find that very interesting to me that, and you can go back in, in just about every one from, you know, ancient Greece to Rome to British, Dutch. I mean, some of the D- st- stories from the Dutch empire were, were wild. Well, I would love if someone out there is very markets oriented and has a distinct you know opinion or a very opinionated stance on Bitcoin volatility and crypto volatility, I would love to talk to you and tell me why I'm wrong. But I, I am going to put this prediction out there that I think Bitcoin volatility, Bitcoin is going to continue to be volatile. Crypto is going to be insanely volatile. But I think generally the trend is down over time. And oh, I, think, I, will, I, think, I will send you the the picture. I, I tweeted it out maybe. I don't know, a week ago. I'll find it and I'll send it to you. But you're you're 100% right. It It is inextricably down. And it's that is the, it's also the nature of, of the beast of large numbers. Right, right, right. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. And 
Yeah, it'll it'll just be. I'm just very interested to see like changes in market structure. I think is interesting, and uh, yeah. But Mark, I wanna I wanna zoom in on. We also had an FOMC this week, and we had a QRA. A QRA is quarterly refunding announcement, which used to be something very mundane and not something that not a lot of people paid attention to. But because <laughs> we're running such massive deficits, all of a sudden the composition of uh, bills versus coupons that the Treasury issues to fund itself matters quite a bit because it depends uh, that basically what the Treasury is getting to do is dictate how much duration the, the market is absorbing. And in such high numbers, it actually matters. So let, let's talk about the FOMC first. So I think to sum up, uh, the the headline that most people took away from the FOMC was that uh, Chair Powell is taking a March rate cut off of the books, right? That's no longer uh, within the realm of possibility. Shocking. Shocking. water on it. Yeah, it, it it's unclear to me how much, and the market sold off. Market sold off a little bit after, and he, you know, as he was going through the questions of reporters, it seemed to get a little bit more hawkish. Uh, you know, he talked about the labor market, et cetera. But uh, it seems like now, basically, what when when it's all said and done, the market has just pushed rate hikes out a couple of months, and it doesn't really. Maybe we're getting a couple fewer than we thought we were. Maybe it's happening not in March, but in May or something like that. But I mean, what was your takeaway from the FOMC this week? Well, I mean, a, a number of things. I mean, and this certainly one of them. I mean, look, the, the idea that they were going to cut rates now is always silly. And and I guess the market, right? And what is the market? It's the collection of, of the participants. I think actually believe they could bully the Fed into it, which, you know, because it's always that, well, this predictor is always right. So it has to be right. Well, no, it's, it's, not, it's not causative. It's correlative. So I think that was, that was the first thing. So the idea that, that suddenly we were going to be in a, in, a, in a world where um, rate cuts were not only necessary, but were politically palatable, I, I think it was silly. Now, we are in election year. And as we get closer to the election, I think the odds go up dramatically that there'll be pressure from the incumbents to to cut rates. So that that I think is is real. But again, if you look at history, when when do feds cut rates? They cut rates in response to economic weakness and recession. Like we're we're literally in recession. It hasn't been called yet, but if you look at at the the chart, you know, you got the gray bars. And, you know, those are the recessions. And the rate cuts start inside those those gray bars, but those gray bars haven't been called at the time of the rate cuts. The, the, that's kind of like the acknowledgement by the Fed that, yeah, things are getting bad. And then nine months later, the, you know, the uh, powers that be, the NBER, say, yep, you were right, there's a recession. So not anywhere close if you look at, at the data, particularly, you know, GDP data, surging. Now, that's a false flag in that, you know, Q4 GDP. But it's like, yeah, look how great we are. That is the best $300 billion of GDP that $800 billion of fiscal deficit could buy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I pay $800 billion for something, I better get more than $800 billion. Don't, don't give me $300 billion. Where the hell did the other $500 billion go? interest and and other places that so there is a there is a bad multiplier effect in 
in government spending right now. It's, it's worse than the normal government spending. Government spending has a negative multiplier. What you want for economic growth is corporate borrowing and spending, not government. Government crowds out private. So that's bad. So that's the first thing. It's just, just a myth that, you know, we, we just pumped up the economy with fake money. And anyway, so, so we got that. Then second thing is jobs. And, you know, I, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, so I'm not going to belabor it, but, you know, they, they're going to keep faking the jobs numbers. And I sent you the analysis the other day that, you know, it's like 50% of the reported jobs then get taken off later in adjustments, but no one looks at the adjustments. So whatever. So they're going to keep lying about jobs. And so no chance that you could just say, we're going to, we're going to cut. Now, does that really matter? Well, the market response was was pretty quick. To me, the more important thing from the FOMC was the removal of the uh, lines about how stable the banking system is. Mm. And if you've been watching the last couple of days, bank stocks are getting cremated and the BTFP, Bank Term Finance Program, BTFP, ends March 11th, you know, right around the eyes of March, which is not really a good time normally, historically. Um, I think, pick a number, 15%, 20% of banks are going to be bankrupt, like out of business. And what's going to happen? And, I, and this was part of my presentation in that power is determined by powerful people. And there have been powerful people in charge for a very long time. And, and part of the reason that the second national bank charter didn't get renewed in the United States was because Andrew Jackson was like, all these European families own the banks. Why do we want to be beholden to them? So he canceled the charter of the national bank and we went in a free banking era. And it was crazy. I mean, it was literally the Wild West. Texas created their own money and companies created their own money and other states created their own money. And, and it was horrible. We had the worst. Sounds familiar. Pardon? Oh, yeah, it does sound familiar. And it's not. And, and we had the great the worst depression in the history uh, of the country to that point. And then we had another one in, in 29. Uh, and so. But but J.P. Morgan. Um, starting in 1907, um, pretty much took over. And they were deemed, there was this guy, George Peabody, uh, who was a, he was American, but he built a business in London uh, and eventually Kidder Peabody and Kidder Peabody, again, they got merged into GE and all this stuff. But but George funded this this guy, JP, and John Pierpont, and actually, he was more friends with his dad, Junius. But long story short, is J.P. Morgan incited a riot around this Knickerbocker Trust thing. We had the big withdrawal. He and John D. Rockefeller saved, literally, with personal guarantee, saved the U.S. banking system. And then Amory Aldrich, J. John D. Rockefeller's father-in-law, created the legislation to start the Fed. And the Fed reinstalled the thing that Andrew Jackson tried to stop, a private corporation that issues money. And, and the point of my speech 
is the quote from Baron Rothschild from the 1800s saying, let me control the issuance of a government's money and I care not who writes the laws. Whoever controls money controls everything. And so if you go back in history over the last 50 years, every major bank failure, who got to buy them? J.P. Morgan, Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, and so there's going to be a whole bunch of banks, I think, that go under and Pac-Man's going to gobble them up and they're going to get even bigger and more powerful. That's the thing I'm worried about, not BlackRock owning some Bitcoin in an ETF. So I think I've actually written about this before. There's, I did this like three-parter on newsletters about, I called the axis, axes of inequality. And it's uh, it kind of goes back to this like long view that I have about the, if you go back, there's a, there's a really great book, Will and Ariel Durant, Lessons of History, where yep. they describe these cycles of, um, these cycles of economics that tend to repeat. And basically the idea is not a particularly new idea. Lots of different historians and economists have uh, summed this up, but basically we go through these periods of inequality where the wealth is up here and then eventually gets distributed. Sometimes it gets distributed in equitable, productive sorts of ways. And other times there are revolutions where everyone gets their head chopped off and not a lot of problems get solved. Um, and he, uh, the way there's a, really, there's a great, <laughs> yes, yes. There's a great line in the, in the, in the book about this where, you know, you can either redistribute wealth or revolutions that redistribute poverty. And it's like, oh, that's such a good line. Uh, but in the, uh, the GI Bill, uh, post-World War II is one of the greatest, up until COVID, uh, was the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world. And what they did was they gave all these GIs that came and fought over in World War II a bunch of stuff. And what they gave them was uh, housing, so access to cheap uh, mortgages, uh, access to credit. Um, so if you want to start a business or something like that, and access to um, education, uh, very cheap or in, almost entirely subsidized yep. education. That plus the, hey, we're alive and Hitler didn't, isn't running the world, led to this massive population boom, and we're basically running off that right now. But you can look at this chart of how many banks there were in the United States going all the way back to the 40s and 50s. And there used to be tens of thousands, and it has been a one-way trip down. Yep. And if you talk to people in the banking system who work in finance and banking, again, what they'll say is, we have a really good system for when banks fail. A larger bank will come in and subsidize the losses, absorb it onto their balance sheet. And again, from that perspective, I can see it works, right? Because the alternative is that the taxpayer and everyone has to bail, bail them out. So it's better if a bank can bail them out. The alternative is exactly what you're describing, that that control ends up getting concentrated in a very small group of people. These large banks are sort of fourth arms of the, you know, arms of the state in, in a sense. But the other problem is that the customer of a large bank is a large corporation. It doesn't make sense for JP Morgan to prioritize small businesses. And it, it, there's this, there's this funny dichotomy. This was a big light bulb moment for me during COVID. I assumed that corporate America, big corporations employed most people in the US. I was yeah. wrong. Nope. It is, nope. yeah. they employ one third of people in the US. Two thirds of people are employed by small mom and pop shops. But, the, here, so do you see the discrepancy? It's like one third of the employers of the United States get access to all the credit. And then two thirds of the, of the net employers of the United States do not have access to credit, basically, or, or much choked off access to credit. All about this, Michael. 
Come on, baby. I know. I know. I just think it's like incentives are converging here. It just makes a not great thing. But I know it's, it's all, it's all about the pyramid. It's all about the pyramid. It's all about concentrating power yeah. at the top. And, yeah. and you do that through the control of money. And you know, Thomas Jefferson said it, right? He said, I think, you know, banks are more powerful than standing armies. And if the, you know, people of the United States ever allow the issuance of their currency to be controlled by the banks and corporations, they'll wind up, their, their grandchildren will wind, up, will wind up homeless and penniless on the shores of the country that their forefathers founded. And he's right. I mean, wealth, it did, you know, Phil Graham was there and he was talking about his book, which says that income inequality isn't as bad as, as everybody says. And he's kind of right, right? They don't, if, if you get a welfare check or a food stamp check, they don't count that as income for the, the bottom rung. Well, that's, that's kind of silly. That, that's clearly part of their income. And to say it's not is it's just kind of silly. But that said, I, I, so I, I grant him that that is true. But the, the wealth dispersion and the opportunity dispersion is the worst it's ever been since 1913. It, and, it's, and it's a one way. And it's really, it was getting bad until 71. And then in 71, it went like 60 degrees up because we, we untethered from, from the gold standard and, and went to fiat. And fiat allows you to steal from the masses way easier, right? Because you can devalue what, because the person who's getting food stamps and welfare check, they don't own a house. So they don't give a shit that real estate prices go up. They just don't. They don't want their rent to go up, but they, they don't benefit from rising real estate prices. They don't own any stocks. So they don't give a shit about stock market and, you know, NVIDIA making new highs. They, they don't care. Um, the problem for them is worse than that. Because the stuff they need to buy, like food and diapers and baby formula, goes up in price. So they get way worse off in a fiat system. And so, yes, he is correct. And the right can say, oh, look, it's not as bad for the, for the poor because we take care of the poor. And our social safety net is great. I, I actually, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a fan. And there are parts of it like the, you know, moving people to actually have to work in order to get the benefit, go find a job because work has benefits to humans. I, I agree with that actually. And, you know, Clinton had a big program for that and all this good stuff. So that's fine. But the wealth inequality part, I mean, you talk about the greatest wealth transfer in human history was the lockdowns. Right. During the nine months following the lockdowns, 3.7 trillion dollars went from the masses to a very small number of the billionaire class. No, but the trillion. Hence, hence the qualifier that I said, it used to be the GI bill yeah. used to be the largest wealth transfer in the history of I the know. United States. And it, and it happened in 2020 and without much fanfare. I mean, people talk about money printer go burr, but they aren't mechanically describing the subsidy and who the subsidy was afforded to. And I completely agree with you that it's a massive issue and it, it is it has contributed to something that in my opinion has been set in motion, which is it's 
people already think the system is rigged and that it's unfair. Like I, again, this is where I think people in the financial system or in finance that have more knowledge of how the financial system mechanically works are sort of missing the forest for the trees here. Yes, the US can continue to issue, maybe we can run these $2 trillion deficits, you know, into perpetuity. I don't know. I, but, but why are you risking it? And the way that I would describe this is, all right, here's the way that I would describe what central bankers are doing and what society is doing. They're taking a massive risk. And maybe it's okay. Maybe it ends up going going fine. But the the amount that they're risking, I'm not happy with, even if it turns out okay. It's kind of like if you have a buddy who's supposed to be your drunk driver, or who's supposed to be your designated driver. Designated driver, and, yeah. And, and, then, and, then, and then he gets drunk, drives you home, and he's like, whoa, that could have been bad. But hey, don't worry. We made it through. We and made like, it. No, I'm not happy that we made it. You no, no, no. I, look, it's a, it's a great an analogy. risk to me. And that's basically what I think is happening now. It's like you are making enormous, you are taking an enormous societal level risk. And even if it turns out, I'm still not over the key that you took the risk. No, nope. That's basically how I feel. No, no, I, I, I love it. And it's, it's exactly right. And look, I, I've said this all the time. I quote this all the time. I have a friend and he said it. It's like, I remember a day when I did not know the names of the central bankers. Yes. I long for that day to return. And it's 100% true. If, if we need to know the names of the central bankers, and if we deify them, we elect them as people of the year and the savior, something wrong. And so at the end, at the end at really, the whole point of all of this is the power, the power, the people up here control the currency. And because of that, they're, they can create whatever content or discontent that they want. And to your point, the risk is that they push it just that little bit too far. Again, it always goes back to my favorite movie, Maverick. Just a little push. Oh, Mav, don't do it. Don't do it. 10.1, 10.2. 10.2 is fine. 10.3, poof, you blow up. And you know that's the wing suspension of disbelief. Someone said if he was traveling that fast at Mach 10, he wouldn't actually survive even if you ejected. But it's a movie and Maverick has to survive. So it's good. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Cruise. Just, guy. oh, he's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to, See if I can find this. There's a link to so he does his, you know, his stunts during Mission Impossible movies. And they detailed the one where I guess in the most recent film he ran drove a motorcycle off of a cliff. And he actually did it. And not only did he actually 13 did times. It, did, yeah, 13 times. 13 times. <laughs> he's not even a young guy in you. How old is he? He's gotta be mid fifties, early fifty nine years yeah. old. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark, I wanna I wanna uh, change tax here and actually get your take on we're going to move a little bit outside of what we usually talk about. And I actually want to talk to you about meta earnings because that's kind of the, all right, so we've got a lot of people like to talk about lack of breadth in the stock market, mag seven, et cetera, et cetera. We had meta and mag six, mag six. Yeah. 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 Uh, Meta shares are up. We're recording this on Friday morning. So this might change for recording before the market opened, but you know, shares are up somewhere between 15 and 20% in pre-market trading and the headline. So there's a new, $50 billion worth of buybacks. But the other uh, new thing that Meta unveiled was its first ever dividend. First ever dividend from Meta, Mark. So I don't know. It's 
uh, you know, I'll, I'll go over some of the details, of the actual earnings release. But for me, it's it's the transition of you know Facebook and Amazon as the high flyers. You know, they're the growth stocks, and I think one of the things that's interesting is how much these large companies are still managing to grow year over year top line revenue. It's pretty startling, but eventually this was this is the life cycle of a company. You know, first you have a bunch of growth investors, it's a growth story, and then eventually it becomes a earning story and a return of capital story. And that's slowly been happening to the tech giants in the US. Do you agree yeah. or disagree? Um, I agree with you, except for the the reason. So, you know, we had to get to Sinister Saturday. So there's a reason that that, that happens. And it's basically you're told by the the overlord, uh, Mr. Buffett, that it that it's time. Meta will now end up in Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio um, because that's what Berkshire is, right? It's a levered portfolio of dividend-paying, stable cash flow, commodity-like stocks. And same thing happened with Apple, right? Apple was this high-flying stock for years, and and then they became a boring dividend payer that's had no basic growth. And Apple's having the opposite, right? It's down meaningfully as a couple. I mean, not as much as. 15%, but it's down because their their revenue is the same today as two years ago. Like this, I mean, that's zero growth. So why would you, but they keep paying out dividend and they buy back shares. So look, you lay off 14,000 people. Turns out you have some free cash flow that you can give to, to Warren. And yeah, I, I, that that sucks. That sucks for those 14,000 people that got laid off. I mean, imagine, think about this. Within a month, you lay off people because you're you're struggling. Oh, but I have enough money to to buy back stock and 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 pay a dividend. Fuck that. Fuck that. I'm I'm sorry. That that just pisses me off. Mm. Well, I I get it, but also I mean, look, this is what investors of a certain the my, my over like they're bunch of pools of capital in the world and they all have different yeah, risk you know, you know, fine fine you know it's all about power politics and populism the power is saying you need to buy back stock to make me richer because my boomers who i've promised all this shit to right i promise me me you know octogenarian financier promised all this stuff and, and not funny it's politician octogenarian politician i I promised all this stuff and I can't make it work. I'm bankrupt. I don't have enough money in Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. I don't have enough money. So you, okay, stock market, need to to go up. And so I'm going to keep rigging the Ponzi. And I'm going to keep, because here's the thing. If you price stocks in dollars, in M2, instead of the currency unit that we think of, it's dead flat since 1960. Mm -hmm. But those Dead are different flat. things, right? Like Warren Buffett's not holding a gun to Mark Zuckerberg's head. Mark Zuckerberg could oh, yes, he is. I don't, no, no, it's not, it's I don't not a, you know, he is. This. He is. He's holding a gun. It's a gun. And a, Uncle Warren controls all of it. XL Pipeline doesn't get approved because Uncle Warren likes his trains carrying the oil. I mean, I can go through dozens and dozens of decisions that happen in Washington. Who got to write the check to Bank of America and Goldman Sachs during the global financial crisis. Huh, it's funny. It was, that was Warren. Got to call in his bathtub, he said. So, um, you, you mean, it's, and again, people forget his dad was one of the most powerful congressmen in Washington 
It's not, it's not an accident. There's one company in the world, one company in the world that never has to pay tax. Only one, Berkshire Hathaway. No one else got that deal. So, Wait, what, what deal was that? It's a structural deal when it was set up that Berkshire Hathaway defers tax in perpetuity. They never have to pay tax. That's why he doesn't pay himself a salary. He just keeps it in Berkshire. Zero tax. Zero. Forever. No company has ever gotten that deal. That's a pretty good deal. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. If you, again, companies are supposed to pay tax, right? But most of them lobby, right? I mean, I always use the ExxonMobil in 2016. They made $40 billion in profit. Tax rate back then was 40%, not the 20-something percent it is now. And what happened? They should have paid $16 billion in tax. That year, they paid $320 million in lobbying. They got a rebate of $1.7 billion. That is a freaking good investment. But, but Mark, eventually companies are supposed to return money to their investors. That's the whole point of investing in a company. <laughs> sure. But who, who, who are the investors? Is the investors the masses, right? How about those bottom 50% of people that own zero stocks? Shouldn't they be getting a share of that? They're the ones using the products. They're the ones, I mean, mm -mm. it's all going to a very small number of people. And that's how the power cycle works. You keep, it's called cronyism, right? If you concentrate the power and the wealth in a small number of people at the top, facilitated by bankers. I mean, look, the Tax Act, I mean, remember when the Trump tax changes? Why did that happen? Why would you give corporations a tax break and raise taxes on middle-income earners, right? That's the way it worked out. Why, why would you do that? Turns out, again, Uncle Warren said, I need more money coming back to me. So here's your Apple. I will cut your taxes as long as you buy back more stock. So as you return this, you know, to the shareholders, and since I'm the biggest shareholder, you should return it to me. Now, you could say, well, the average person could buy Berkshire Hathaway, and there are plenty of people who have been made rich by owning Berkshire Hathaway. That's, there are plenty of people, plenty, but not the masses. I, but what, what's the alternative that we're proposing here? Because in my opinion, the whole point of starting a company is that you make money and then you eventually give it back to your investors once you don't have anything new to invest in, and then you, then you end the company. That's, that's how companies work. So what's the alternative? Um, no, 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 look, I, I'm, I'm all about returning capital to shareholders. For me, personally, I, I think it should be a fair game, right? Rather than a rigged game. And that's, and that's just me. And people don't like that. when I say that, right? They say, I'm a socialist, right? Not, not a socialist, right? I just, I just believe in, in fairness. And so if... If the if that stock okay suddenly ends up in Warren's portfolio, which I predict it will, if it's not already, and then he's getting a disproportionate amount of the benefit, is that fair? Well, I don't know. I don't think it is, but it's okay. It's it's like look, it's like government contracts getting awarded to friends or like or like money going to Ukraine and going to defense companies. Is that fair? Hell no. But you know, I'm not going to stop it. Is it right that that Nancy can 
can buy NVIDIA calls and then rule on legislation that awards government grants to NVIDIA. I mean, that, that's what happened. Mm. But, you know, it's not against I just the law. Think those are, I think those are different things, though, because that's a politic. Like, I'm not a fan. I think the Nancy Pelosi trading thing is nuts. Uh, that's I, I, no, 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 okay. I, They are different. You're right. No, they're, yeah. they're different things. But I'm going to argue that they're not that different. And if you, if you dive into why certain companies become large, you will find that they get government benefits, right? They get special treatment. They get special allocations. They get special awards. I mean, you can go back and look at the history of Microsoft, of Google, of Tesla. I mean, look at all the government things that they got that other people don't get. Mark, the Tesla people are going to be after you again. Every time you talk okay. about Tesla on this show, they... they it's okay. They don't hate me. And look, I, I, I feed on the hate. I, like I said, I, I went to Ellis Costello concert the other night. So I've, I saw him literally 40 years ago, almost to the day. And uh, it's amazing. I hadn't gone to a concert of his in 40 years. And uh, it was amazing. He is, he is an amazing musician. I mean, just amazing. And just, you know, he, he didn't have as much energy as as um, Mick. I saw Mick a couple of years ago and Mick at, at 78 was like unbelievable. Um, Elton was unbelievable in his 70s. And, you know, El- Elvis is only 69, but he was still I mean, two plus hours. Awesome. One observation. I like 78 RPM Elvis better than 33 RPM. He did a lot of slower versions of the songs and I like his fast um, 33 songs on an album. But but he said it best, right? At one point, he was sing. He said, "I, I want to sing this song," and it was actually a political song from the Cold War about "I don't care, I don't want your Lyndon Johnson," which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and uh, he said, "You know what? I'm gonna sing it anyway because I actually don't care if you like me or not. In fact, I feed on the hate." So, yeah, the test the test lemmings can hate me. That's okay. All right, we got to do a lightning round here because I forgot non-farm payrolls came out at the time that we recorded and I've got results for you and I want to get your take. So we have, here's how they came in. Change in US non-farm payroll for January, 353,000 versus an estimate of 185,000. Previous was 333,000. Unemployment rate in January is 3.7%. Previously, it was 3.7. We thought we were going to move up to 3.8. Nope, we're staying pat. Average hourly earnings month over month, uh, the estimate was 0.3, came in at 0.6% growth. Average hourly earnings on a year-over-year basis, uh, the estimate was 4.1%. We came in at 4.5. And November and December have both been revised up. November by 9,282 k and December was revised up by 117,000 to 333 k So... Look, I'm 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 with you. You've actually brought me around on the whole birthday thing, but that is a hot report. That's that is, hot. There's no two ways about it. That is a hot report. Um, no, that's hot. Uh, and I'm glad you didn't ask me. I'm not. I, you know, normally you ask me, and I embarrass myself. I know. I put I'm, you on I'm the spot. Too conservative. Sorry. And yeah. I would have been. I would have been too conservative again. And I mean that. That's yeah. that's a big number. Yep. Um. I mean, I'm just and, looking. Yeah. You know, my only thing with that is. It definitely has to be a BLS thing because uh, we have this little restaurant here in town, brand new it's a, a brunch place. And I've tried to go there twice. And the wait is like, 
hours, literally. And you know, food's fine, but and, and but I got inside and I figured out why. It's because they don't have any help. Um, they just don't have enough wait staff and and runners for the food. And we had to wait, you know, 30 minutes to get our food. And so I'm like, if employment's so hot, why don't they have all those people employed? So I, I don't know. I thought that was that was an interesting little anecdote. Um, but uh, you know, I know we got to run here in a second. But let me let me ask you: What do you think? What do you think would happen if inflation were to take back off? Like, I know you don't think that's the case, but yeah. how do you think markets would react if? we were to get a steady walk back up in inflation from here? Just out of curiosity. Well, I mean, <laughs> how markets should react and how they will react. So markets should react quite negatively to that. Um, but uh, in, in a similar way to kind of the um, 81, 83, you know, we had double dip recession. Um, we, we should have that, you know, and we had the, you know, we had the 21 peak, and you've shown this, right? We had 21 peak and the drop, and now we've come all the way back. So we've made a perfect double top. I mean, yeah. a, a threat of, of, of higher inflation and higher for longer rates, because then the higher for longer rates would start to go into deficit problems and paying the interest problems and, and a spiral of events that should be very negative. But what I have found is, um, there's there's one goal there's one goal keep the stock market high because it's what's funding all the 401ks and 403bs so i think then the narrative would shift to and i believe this actually over long periods of time high interest rates are a sign of economic strength low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness so what what i think the narrative would shift is you know it's Battleship America, we're back, baby. And, you know, multiples can go up. Now, how multiples can go higher from here? I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, that's all, all the gains last year were multiple expansion. We really didn't have earnings expansion. You know, we had multiple expansion. Now, a few companies did, but, but, you know, most of the companies, 493 of them didn't do very well. And if you look at, the, I, I love the chart. It shows, uh, the the Mag Seven, or now they're calling it the Mag Six because they took Tesla out, um, and because you know it's ruining it's ruining the narrative, right? Oh, Mark, they're going to get shredded in these comments, man. Oh no, 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 but but it's true. You, you haven't seen this? They're literally calling it the Mag Six. No, that's super. They funny. literally started calling it the Mag Six, and and it's because if you look year to date, the other six stocks are all up, and Tesla's down. They're like, well, we don't like that. We want them all to be up. So they just they just lopped off one of them and called it the Mag Six, but I, I'm, I didn't do it. I you know I'm just a, I'm just a you know an observer, casual observer. I'm with you, uh, Mark. I, I want to end in actually a shameless plug here and show and show you guys um, again. Mark and I are going to be hanging out in London at a pub before we actually kick this conference off, the Digital Asset Summit. But uh, usually I wouldn't say something like this. All you know the events are like my children. They're all I love them all equally, but. This is the best lineup for a conference, for a DAS conference that we've ever put on here. If you're looking at this, uh, my screen, we've got uh, Dan Tapiero, Pascal Gauthier, 
uh, Mark Yusko, uh, you're in there as well. Anthony Scaramucci, Sonnenschein from uh, Grayscale, Brad Garlinghouse, Sergey Nazarov. We just added Mike Cagney to the list. We got Rune Christensen to the list. Uh, Matt McDermott of Goldman Sachs, Tony Ashroff of uh, BlackRock. It is it is the best institutional event we've ever put on, and it's and it's what makes it what makes it cool is there are really institutional people, but there are people that are building the next gen of DeFi protocols and super in the weeds. You just do not get that in the same room at the same time. So I just can't wait to do that. But I'm no, really I, I am our hang with Santi and Yano before uh, before they call. No, it's gonna be so so fun. And, and look, congrats to to the team. Uh, and, you know, I was one of the, the early commits. So there, everyone just wants to hang out with, with you and me. So <laughs> that, that, that is right, Mark. No, that no, no. I'm, right. just, I'm just kidding around. I'm just kidding around. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not famous. I'm not, I don't work for one of the famous firms, but that list of firms unparalleled. I mean, there've been a lot of good blockchain related events, Bitcoin related events, ETH. There have been good ones. There have. Nothing like this. I mean, this is, and this is everything we started off this show about in terms of the acceptance of the ETF and the, and the, we're, you know, we did a webinar yesterday about this, that this is the beginning of the middle of the S curve, right? The first decade is, you know, the early adopters and the innovators. And now we're going to the mass adoption phase and mass adoption. It's here. I mean, it's going to it take is. a decade, but but it's here. And to have every major financial services organization say, yep, I need to be at this conference uh, is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, kudos to y'all uh, for all the hard work you've, you've done to, to put it together. And I think only in hindsight, will people really recognize how big a deal it is? Um, because in the future, there'll be more high quality content. But when you look at that group relative to other groups uh, at other conferences, it, it's it's gold-plated, gold-plated. It's going to be so, a blast. Bravo. But you come for those, but you stay for Mark Yusko. That's what I think. Uh, that's my personal take. So yeah, I, I'm fun to have a beer with. So you know, we, we will have a we will have a pint together and and uh, maybe two. Have some fun. And maybe three. Maybe three. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Because because Guinness, it, it it doesn't. It's light. It's very light. It is. You know what? And it's just not the same over here. I actually went to a, a dinner thing this week. Oh, no, no, I, no. I no, got no. myself a Guinness. I was like, it is not. I still will drink it over here. I still actually do drink it a good amount, but it, it is not the same as it is over here. Well, in, and London, to, to say the un, the unsayable, right? It's, it's not the same in London either as Ireland, but it's close. But it's close. It's close. It is. I mean, it's better. People drink it more, so it turns over more. You know, it, yeah, it, no, no, that's, people, that's true. People it in is. the U.S. don't like it. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, Getting it from the factory, like literally, if you're right next to the factory in in a pub in in Dublin, it's like otherworldly. I mean, it's so good. But but the the British is pretty good, and and the British has some some pretty good beer of their own. They've got some pretty good stuff. So cool. Mark, food, not so much, but the beer is yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't have to talk about the food. Beer, great. You're gonna love it. Um, sites, great. You're gonna love it. Mark, sites as always, are great. Best hour of the week. Yep. All right. Cheers.